1 Kings chapter number 22. We'll read a handful of verses here. I think this is going to be a helpful sermon to many of us as we consider the past several months in our country and also look forward to the next several years of our country. I hope this will be a help to us. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse number 1, the Bible says, And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. That is the king Ahab. And the king of Israel, again Ahab, said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Now verse 4 and 5 ought to be swapped. Now, I'm not saying that it ought to be swapped in the translation, as you'll often hear preachers say, well, the translator should have said this. No, well, I tell you, those 70-some-odd men that translated the Bible are a lot smarter than me, so I'm not going to do that. But I'm saying, in the order of events, as far as Jehoshaphat is concerned, he ought not to have given his answer to, uh, to Ahab until he had gone to God in prayer. But no, he says, yeah, I'll go with you. My people are your people. My horses are your horses, man. I am with you on this deal. But why don't we pray about it first? (laughs) We should. That's way out of order. And, and, And honestly, can we all admit, sometimes we get that out of order as well. We make our plans and then we go to God for uh, our pleas. Notice in verse number five. uh, And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, inquire, I pray thee at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Wow! That is a unanimous consent. All 400 of these prophets say, You should do it. God's going to give you the battle. It's yours for the taking. Go on, king. God's going to bless you. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? Now why do you think that Jehoshaphat is not content with the word of 400 prophets? Probably Jehoshaphat said, if we can get 400 preachers to agree on anything, something's wrong. But what in his mind was so alarming? What stood out to him that said, I know everybody's saying we should go, but is there not somebody else we can ask? Verse number 8. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. 
Is there not one that we can speak to about this? Is there not one that we know has a direct line with God? Is there not one that when we ask this question, they're not going to give us a bunch of spiritual jargon. They're going to give us the truth. Is there not one in all of Israel? And as the king Ahab rolls his eyes in the back of his head, he says, yeah, there's a guy, Micaiah. But I hate him. There's a little bit like a toddler temper tantrum going on in Scripture here. The Bible says, I hate him for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Let me give you the modern day English translation of that. I don't like him because he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. That's what he's saying. He doesn't prophesy good concerning me. Notice in verse number uh, 8. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. You never know, king, maybe, maybe he'll agree with these 400 witnesses. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah the son of Imlah. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. All these 400 prophets... Prophets with great unanimity. They're all together on this deal. We can win the battle. And Zedekiah seems to be like a chief officer among these priests. Uh, the son of Chinaanath uh, made him horns of irons. Now we're getting theatrical with it. This is like the Eastern, Easter production here. He makes him horns of iron. And he saith, Thus saith the Lord, With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou have consumed them. As if their word wasn't enough, they need an object illustration now to really communicate how utterly the Lord will bless this venture. And all the prophets prophesied saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. Well, they're, they're pretty consistent with their messaging too. I mean, nobody's wavering. They're all still, the Lord's going to deliver. And the messenger that was gone in verse 13 to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Everybody's in agreement, Micaiah. Can't you just get along? Everybody else is saying good things. Everybody else is for this. We're going to win the battle. Can't we all just get along? And he says this, Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them. And speak that which is good. You notice any problem with that? The messenger doesn't say, hey, Micaiah, just come tell us what's right. Micaiah, just come tell us the truth. There's one guy in all the kingdom that is a truth teller. And when the messenger goes to get him, he says, Micaiah, I know you're known. I know everybody knows you because you always speak the truth. But in this case, and in this instance, can you just come and tell us what everybody wants to hear? Can't we all just get along? And Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Let's pray this morning. Father, today I ask that you would bless the sermon, bless this message, help it have direction and a clear focus, help it to be pointed and instructive and helpful. Today, Lord, I ask that you would lead me throughout this word and throughout this passage so that I might be clear and direct. 
And Lord, I pray that every person in our auditorium this morning would just say quickly to you that, that they would ask that you would speak to them individually. Uh, we are joined together as a corporate body, but today this process, this delivery of the message doesn't happen in a corporate setting. It happens on an individual basis where the word of God is directly applied to the individual heart and life of the believer. So God, I pray that you would do that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The current state of America is not such because of the result of the last week of election. The current state of America, I would even say, is not the result of a series of elections, whether good or bad in your own estimation. I would even go so far as to say the current state of America is not really politically... Uh, the, the problem is not necessarily political. The current state of America is such because of the moral and spiritual failures of Christians for generations. It is not the result of one ballot cast or one ballot falsified. It is the result of decades of failures on our part. The other day I was speaking to a man in our church and he was telling me about uh, he was headed down the road and uh, he pulled up to uh, essentially what he assumed was the scene of an accident. He, he couldn't see the accident and he couldn't see the people involved. He couldn't see the area at which it took place. The line had backed him up so far that he couldn't see those things. But he just figured that based upon everything he was seeing, there had been an accident. As he was sitting there, he was backed up away from the scene and traffic had come to a stop and even people were getting out of their cars and he watched as the care of flight flew overhead and went up a little ways far beyond his sight and he watched the care of flight land there in the road. And, and I thought as he was telling me this story, I thought it was ironic that he was able to accurately assess what was going on without actually having to see it. He didn't go up and visit the scene of the accident, although there were people doing that. He didn't need to. He assumed, based upon the, uh, the, the trucks, the, the, the ambulances that had passed, the, based upon the care flights that had flown over and landed, he, based upon all that he had, all the information he had, he just assumed that somebody was in an accident up ahead. Come to find out as traffic cleared out and they kept moving forward. He passed by the scene of the accident. It was, in fact, a motorcycle accident. And not one but two care flights had been brought in. It wasn't an accident with a motorcycle and another vehicle. Just seemingly the motorcycle had lost control and, and basically launched the rider or riders into the ditch. But why didn't he have to see it? Because in our world, we are familiar with that sight. It's not uncommon to see an accident on the side of the road and we often pass by and as each car passes by we look on hoping to see that the damage isn't that severe. Certainly there are some accidents we go by and we see people outside exchanging information and we're like, oh good, everybody's okay. It's just a, a, a fender bender. But then there is the occasional accident that we're ushered by that we look and say, oh, I hope somebody made it out of that. We look at cabs that are completely crushed and collapsed. We watch cars as they've flipped and we're by no means experts on accidents, but we're familiar enough with them to say, 
man, it's not looking good for those folks. I think what we're now looking at in America is we are passing by the damage that is done. We're not looking at a country that is running headlong into destruction. We are looking at a country that has already had the accident. We're trying to deal with the broken pieces of our society and trying to figure out how we as Christians are to operate within this society. Today I want to share with you uh, uh, three sad realities of a nation headed towards destruction. And I don't want that to be an ominous title, and I certainly don't want to come to church today and leave you with no hope. But the truth of this message and what's applicable for us is, how do we operate within this nation that is headed towards destruction, as this man Micaiah did? I want you to notice in the first place this morning, in every nation that is headed for destruction, there is the accommodation of compromise. There is the accommodation of compromise. In our passage this morning, this uh, meeting between the king of Israel and the king of Judah is based upon this idea of going and getting Ramoth Gilead. The background and the context of that is, years prior, the king of Israel, Ahab, had already defeated the king of Syria. He had already won. And in the concession, in the uh, uh, surrender terms... The king of Syria said, we will give you all the cities back that we have. Ramoth Gilead would have been included in that. But over the course of time, three years has passed, the battle has been won, the agreement has been made, but the city had not been given back yet. So Ahab, the king of Israel, looks around and he says, hey, that's our city. And they promised it to us. That's a, actually a Levitical city in the Bible. He says, that's our city and we need to get it. And it's this that sparks the conversation between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Will you go up to battle with us against the king of Syria? And I want you to notice with me, first of all, a national division that is present in our passage this morning. A national division. What you see here is the product of years and years of separation existing in the nation of Israel. Don't get confused. Uh, this Israel and Judah used to be a unified nation. In fact, if you want to call it like this, it was the United Tribes of Israel. <laughs> they were together. And, and they were all under one blanket. Twelve tribes under the nation Israel. But after King Solomon passed off the scene, 80 years has passed and these kingdoms have been divided. Ten tribes with Israel... Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, with uh, Judah. And they're divided nations. And these nations have not been on the same path uh, or trajectory spiritually, economically, financially, none of those things. You have the northern kingdom, that is Israel, and their whole, every, the whole time their kings have been wicked. Every one of them. In fact, this king, Ahab, is married to Jezebel. It is these that Elijah had his most vicious run-ins with, the king of Israel. Now, Judah, on the other hand, had a king by the name of Asa. And in his reign, they saw revival. They saw spiritual renewal like no other king had before his time. He removed down the groves. He took out the idols. And they all committed themselves to worshiping God. It's really the tale of two nations here. One trying to live for God and one not caring at all. In fact, 
the influence of Jezebel upon Ahab has essentially entirely removed the worship of God from their nation entirely. They have become a Baalistic society. The tale of two nations. But now they're trying to get along. Now they're trying to coexist. You have uh, uh, this Jehoshaphat who is a good king. In fact, the Bible says he walked in the ways of his father and he did not turn to the right or to the left. He's a good king, but he's a good king trying to get along with a bad king. And they make an agreement and they make treaties and they, they come together. And, and here they're like, the, the idea here is we both have a common enemy and we both have a common goal. Why don't we just come together and get along for a short time so that we can prosper? The Bible tells us this never works because the Bible says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two get along? You say, yeah, but we have common goals. Yes, but the ultimate goal is not the same of these two nations. Sadly enough, our enemy, Satan, does his best work at dividing. This may come as a surprise to you, but the Greek word that his name is taken from, the devil... The Greek word can be translated division or separator. Or in fact, to put one against another. It's one of his chief strategies to introduce division. In fact, there, uh, Satan wants nothing more this morning than to, to divide our church. Uh, to, divide, to divide our church so that one person has to sit on the right hand and one person has to sit on the left hand. One person has to park in that parking lot and the other person has to park in this parking lot because they can't get along. He introduces division because it always tears us apart. He's a divider. Uh, in his fall from heaven, the Bible tells us in the book of the Revelation, he wasn't content falling by himself. What did he do? He took a portion of the angels and divided them against God, a third of them. His goal in attempting Eve was to divide Eve and Adam. In fact, if you look very closely, he was even trying to divide Eve from Adam. Notice he didn't tempt them together. Why? Because he works best when division is present. The whole purpose of tempting Jesus when he tempted him all in the wilderness, all by himself, divided, separated, alone from everybody. And his whole goal and temptation for Jesus was that he might separate Jesus from the Father and, and introduce just a little doubt. Yea, hath God said, hasn't Scripture said, oh, are you sure, Jesus? Division. I believe that unity is the plan of God. But listen. We must never be so pursuing unity that we sacrifice truth. It is, rather to, it is better to be unified by truth, or, or be divided by truth, than to be unified by a lie. I would rather stand for what's right and have no friends than to stand for what's wrong in the presence of the enemies. We see a king probably trying to do the right thing for his people, probably trying to get back together and get along with everybody. But there comes a time when truth and righteousness and holiness is more important than any goals or progress that can be attained by getting along with others. This king should have taken a stand, but he simply did not. I want the United States of America to be united again. But I'm just telling you, when I look at the landscape of our country, 
We are more divided now racially, uh, economically. I mean, you look over the past year of, of, of our country, and you see racial tensions at an all-time high. And you say, Brother Andrew, do you believe that there's racism in America? Oh, absolutely. I think you'd be a fool not to say that. But I also have spoken to people that have traveled the world over, and they said America is the most least racist place they've ever been. Racism exists everywhere. But this idea that America is just this uh, systematic racial place, it's just, uh, it's taking our eye off the ball, I believe is what it's done. We're divided economically. Have you ever noticed how, uh, how rich people are now viewed as the enemy of poor people? Or they're, they're presented that way, aren't they? It has all the bearings and markers of the French Industrial Revolution. Oh, you have the factory owners versus the factory workers. And these two can't get along. They're not pursuing the same goal. No, they, they, they hate each other. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily the case at all. We, we, we hate the one percenters, although we're all trying to get to the one percent. Have you ever noticed that? People that sit there and tell us from their political platforms that the one percenters are evil, they're making millions and millions of dollars. It's a crazy war we're living in. We're all divided. We're divided politically. As I was in conversations with somebody this week, this took, stood out to me. I would give them credit if I could remember who it was. Uh, but they said, you know, our country used to be two parties trying to accomplish the same thing in different ways. But now we have two parties that aren't even trying to accomplish the same thing. It's not that our tactics are different or the way that we get there is different. It's that the end goal is different. We're divided. We're divided all throughout. And I want the United States of America to be united once again. But listen to me. If we cannot be united on righteousness, goodness, and holiness, I am not willing to unite. If I have to sacrifice these unsacrificable truths, I'm not willing to get together. I'm not willing to coexist. I'm not willing to get along with my brother just because he's my brother. I am standing for God in this very wicked day and age that we live in. And I don't care if they say it's not politically correct. I don't say if they say it's unkind. This is the Word of God and it's never changed from beginning to the end. And I will stand upon this book because it is right forever and ever. We will look at a society that is ultimately divided. There's a national division. But I want you to see, secondly, there's a national delusion. Verse number 4, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, says to the king of Israel, Ahab, he says this, Will thou go with me to battle? And uh, Jehoshaphat responds, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Now, why would he say that? Why would a king just open up the armory, the treasury, and all the resources of his kingdom to fight the battles of another kingdom? Why would he go so far to do that? There's a backstory to this. In fact, Jehoshaphat desired this peace among these two, these two kingdoms so much that he actually had his son marry the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. The reason he's saying your people are my people is because he's saying, hey, brother, we're family. It's true. They are family. Could you imagine having, giving your son away to acquire Jezebel as his mother-in-law? How much do you hate your kid? Nonetheless, what we see is we see this, uh, 
sort of capitulation taking place. It's okay, I'll give up areas here. I'll, I'll surrender small things here just so that we can get along. Do you realize this, that everything we surrender under the guise of trying to get along, we never get back? We, we take steps back and in our, in our faith we say, well, you know, I know that the Ten Commandments might be offensive within schools and I understand how everybody might not be a Christian and so they can look at that and say, you know, that's unfair. You know, we'll never get that back. The decisions made in the attempt to get peace are never gained again. We surrender these things Uh, Jehoshaphat lost his son for good in this treaty and alliance with Israel. Kind of reminds me and has all the markers of Lot trying to give his daughters to suffice to to appease the, the angry mob outside of his house. They say, give us the men that came into your house tonight. And Lot's like, well, I'll give you my daughters. What a shame. What, what type of a crazy line of thinking is it that says, well, well I'll, just, I'll sacrifice an area so that we can just have peace, that we'll just get along. Uh, a husband wanted a boat one day. I can certainly identify with this, but the wife didn't want him to get one. He left the house, drove a long way, found a boat that he wanted, and without his wife's permission, he came home and he, uh, he had the boat attached to his truck. He pulled up in the front yard with a boat. The wife, as you can imagine, was a little bit angry at all the events that had taken place that he didn't get permission and that he knew, she, he knew that she didn't want him to get a boat in the first place. And so the husband was kind of in the doghouse. He said to his wife, honey, I know you're not super happy about this, but maybe we can, you know, in the spirit of compromise, we can come together. I got the boat, but I'll let you name the boat. And so the husband took it down to the dock. A week later, he went down to the dock and saw plastered on the back of his boat, For sale. <laughs> you see, we always lose when we compromise. We always lose when we compromise. What we've done is we've gone to the world and we've said, Yeah, but in the spirit of compromise, we can have our way, but you can have your way too. What concord hath light with darkness? You know, darkness flees in the presence of light. In the absence of light, it persists, but it flees in the presence of light. What These two can't get along. What concord hath Christ with Belial? These don't get along, and in the spirit of compromise, we've sacrificed and surrendered, by my estimation, far too much. It's time the church of God took a stand. Be willing to fight for the things that are worth fighting for. We must never be so desperate to have peace that we surrender truth. So we see in the first place, we see a, 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 an accommodation of compromise. I want you to see in the second place, the absence of a witness. The first marker of a nation headed for destruction is this attitude of compromise. But notice, this absence of a witness. Now here's what's unique about this. It wasn't that there were no witnesses, it's that the witnesses they had were not speaking truth. Notice in verse number 6. The Bible says, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. If you do a little Bible study here, 
there's some unique parallels to the time of Elijah here. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 18 is when Mount Carmel took place. Mount Carmel, when Elijah called down fire from heaven, 450 prophets of Baal. And in that story, there are 400 prophets of the grove as well. And the Bible tells us that after the fire falls and Elijah is proven right, he takes all the prophets of Baal and slays every one of them. It kind of angers Jezebel just a little bit. But the Bible doesn't say that Elijah does the same thing with the prophets of the grove. In fact, the prophets of the grove numbered 400 just four chapters ago. And now, these same, probably, these same prophets are called to testify on behalf of God. A few, few chapters ago, they're dancing on, a, on, on a, a altars trying to get their gods to answer them. And now they're standing before uh, Jehoshaphat and before uh, uh, Ahab. And they're saying, yep, the God of the Bible says that you've got this. It seems like they were sort of all-time prophets. You remember in the backyard when you were playing uh, football with your, your friends and your family, how there was always one guy who was like, I'm all-time QB. And that meant that he was always the quarterback, no matter what team was playing, no matter which direction you were going. He just flip-flopped teams, and he was always the quarterback for both teams. These guys were all-time prophets. It didn't matter who they were prophesying on the behalf of, they just prophesied for any and every god they could. In fact, this becomes apparent when Jehoshaphat says, Is there not anyone here that can testify or uh, witness to us on behalf of God? The way he uses the word God is Yahweh. That is the appropriate Hebrew name for the God of the Bible. Yahweh. But when these men come and they testify on behalf of the Lord, they use an entirely different name. In fact, that name is Adonai. And that, that can be a proper name for the God of the Bible. But in most cases, it's just used generically as a Lord. Any Lord. So when Jehoshaphat is wanting to hear from the prophets of God, these guys are like, yeah, we prophesy on the behalf of many gods. Go up, God or the Lord will give you the battle. They're not even talking about the same God. And that is the result and that is the reality in America today. It is not that there are no people speaking on behalf of Christ. It's that these people are simply mouthpieces. They are empty and hollow and their life bears no fruit of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. The God of most American Christians today is one that gave them everything and expects nothing in return. The God of most Christians in our world today say, Well, God wants me to be happy, healthy, holy and wise. And if He ever fails to meet up to that standard of my expectation, it's His failure and not mine. That's the God most people pre preach about and present to us. And I think even the world realizes that that's not a real God. The God of uh, most people's Christianity bears more resemblance to the idol placed upon the mantle than the God that is presented in this book. He's the God of their own imagination. Oh, sure, they take aspects of God through, from the Bible. God is good. God is loving. God is merciful. You know, they take all these components that they like and they relegate all the ones that they don't like. God is jealous. And God is holy. 
And God is vengeful. They take all those and they leave those in the Bible. But the God that they expound to the world is one that wants them to be prosperous and wants them to do good. And when they go to battle, they say, God will surely give me this battle. The problem in America today is not an absence of witnesses. It is an absence of truth tellers. Of people that are willing to not only speak what is right, but of people that are willing to live what is right according to God's word. You see, the Bible teaches us here that these people had a congregation of witnesses. But I want you to notice not only the congregation of witnesses, but the coercion of their word. This is, this is pathetic. Verse number 13, notice with me. As this messenger comes to Micaiah, Micaiah is known for being the guy that speaks up, the guy that says what he's thinking, the guy that says what God wants him to say. And here's what the messenger says unto him. Behold now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, Micaiah, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. If they can't get you to live like they live and be like they are, they will want you to give them a permission slip for their promiscuous lifestyle. Can't you just, can't you just get along? Can't you just let me live my life how I want to live it? Can't you just write off and say it's all going to be okay? In our world today, there is, a, there is an overt attempt to get Christians to speak certain ways or to prevent them from saying certain things. In 2018, a California assemblyman by the name of Evan Lowe presented to the state legislature in California a bill that essentially made it illegal to try to get folks with a particular sexual orientation to try to convert them to another sexual orientation. Essentially, the bill stated that any attempt to convert a homosexual to a heterosexual was foolish and futile, and so it was illegal to even to attempt to do so. And the way that they would prosecute these is, if you sold literature that might teach somebody that God's plan for mankind is one man and one woman coming together. Remember, when God designed Adam and Eve, God looked at Adam and said, God, uh, said Adam, you're not good enough in yourself, so I will prepare for you a helpmeet. She helped him. And when coming together, they made a perfect one flesh, a unit together, serving God. So God's plan from the beginning was one man, one woman, in a relationship pursuing God. And when we look at the Bible, it presents it over and over and over again that anything outside of that definition will lead to sorrow. It will not be met with fulfillment. The heartbeat of the world today is, well, why can't you let me love who I want to love? The Bible says, if you pursue that path, it will lead to destruction and devastation. That would be like saying to the heroin addict, why can't you just let me have what I want to have? Well, because the heroin is destroying you. That would be like saying to the alcoholic, why can't you just let me do what I want to do? Why can't you just let me drown my sorrows? Well, because your sin and your sickness is affecting not only you, but it's affecting those around you. You're becoming unprofitable to those around you. Why can't you just let me live? And that is the idea of the day. Let me be who I want to be. But God says, anything outside of His, His plan for you will be met with misery. 
In a very real sense, every Christian that says God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman, in the bounds of marriage, together pursuing God, any Christian that is saying that is saying this, we want everyone to be happy. We want everyone to find the perfect will of God for their life. Oh, it sounds exclusive when you say, why can't you let me love who I want to love? Because if you love that, if you pursue that, you will be met with sorrow. You'll be met with utter sadness. You see, this bill attempted to say that any materials that might to attempt to take and convert a homosexual man to a heterosexual man was illegal. You know what kind of book does that? This one. This book, when used to counsel a homosexual, will always tell them that homosexuality is an abomination. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that we're all for heterosexual adultery because they're both abominations to God. But here we find the Bible tells the homosexual how they can find perfect joy and peace in God's plan for them. And this book, in a sense, depending on how you start to interpret that law, could be deemed illegal for sale. You say, Brother Andrew, that's not a good enough definition. That doesn't work. Okay. Let me tell you, in 2019, another bill was passed by the United States House of Representatives. The bill was entitled H.R. 5. It was known as the Equality Act. This act was for the purpose of to prohibit discrimination based upon sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and a wide variety of areas, including public accommodations and facilities. That's when you started to see uh, gender-neutral bathrooms. So you have a man's bathroom, a woman's bathroom, and then a... It bathroom, I guess is what they call it. I don't know what they call it. But you have these multiple bathrooms because the law required that you would accommodate these different orientations. And then it goes so far as you couldn't discriminate based upon education, federal funding, employment, or housing credit, or the jury system. You say, well, I don't want anybody to be discriminated against. And I agree with that. But here's the problem. If that bill passes... Places like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, Christian organizations, they're going to have to hire everybody that comes in there. And they can't say, well, you know, we don't really support your lifestyle. We don't agree with this type of lifestyle. And if they choose to not hire someone based upon their gender identity or their gender orientation or sexual orientation or preference, there's a whole lot of words. You've got to get them all right. The LGBT, you know what I mean. All these things, if they say, well... Your values do not align with the values of our company. This is the cake baker that does not want to bake a cake for the homosexual marriage. If their values do not match up with their values, it doesn't matter. The business is then liable for not, uh, not doing business with that person. You say, none of this is a real problem. What we're seeing is a very subtle shift to coercing what we can do and what we can say in America. You say, Brother Andrew, I think you're taking this too far. Listen to me. In 10 years, there will be a bill, I promise you, that says that if churches do not accept all forms of sexual identity and orientation, they will lose their tax-exempt status. I promise you it is heading in that direction. I can see it as clear as the handwriting on the wall. It is coming because our world doesn't want to get along with us. They only want us to get along with them. 
And this book says what is right and true and holy, and it never changes. But our, our, our people, our Christianity, has been constantly evolving. But if this book has never changed, you know what we've done? We've evolved away from this book. And we have sacrificed truth in an attempt to get unity and harmony. And what we've done is we have failed our nation. Because in the midst of a nation that was running breakneck speed away from God, there were no truth-tellers like Micaiah to stand up and say what was right. Once you see a nation that is on its way to destruction will not only have an accommodation of compromise, an absence of witness, but notice the abandonment of obedience. And I close with this. The word comes from Jehoshaphat. Is there not one prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? Ahab says, well, there's one guy, but I hate him. And they try to coerce Micaiah, saying, well, can't you prophesy good like everybody else? Can't you just get along with us? Micaiah says, well, in verse number 14, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. You know, there's an obligation to truth. If you know the truth, you have to tell it. The Bible says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That means, if you just flip that coin over, if you don't know the truth, you're currently not free. People aren't crying for freedom, crying for liberty. They're running headlong into bondage. They say, why can't you just let me live my life? I think it was in Oregon at this just last election. Small doses of heavy, heavy drugs were passed. They're saying, why can't you just give us freedom? Freedom to what? Have withdrawals? Freedom to overdose? Freedom to be addicted to something that you can't get out from under? That's not freedom. That's tyranny. That's absolute bondage. And that's the way the Bible presents sin, by the way. In bondage to sin. But when you know the truth, the truth makes you free. As people that know the truth, we have an obligation to broadcast it. It doesn't matter how much they want to coerce us or to silence us. We must speak the truth. Matthew Henry said the greatest kindness we can do to one that is going in a dangerous way is to tell him of his danger. Jeremiah got so discouraged in the ministry. He said, I'm just done preaching in the name of God. I'm done speaking for God. I'm done doing what I've been doing all these years. And uh, he says, I will not make mention of him nor speak of any more of his name, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He says, I knew the truth and I had to let it out. It was burning in my heart. Friend, are you a truth teller to your, to your network? Are you a truth teller to the people that you interact with? Or you just get along for the purpose of cooperation and harmony and unity. You just get along because it's, the confrontations are too much to deal with. If we don't tell our friends, if we don't tell our neighbors, if we don't tell our relatives about the truth, here's what they do. They die and end up in an eternity of hell. We must be truth tellers. We must be truth speakers. There's an obligation of the truth, but I want you to notice the rejection of truth. Verse 24. But Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, that sounds like a Beatles song, doesn't it? Chenana. That's just what I thought when I read it. Apparently nobody else did, though. 
Chanana. That's kind of, but, uh, but Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek. So the picture is presented here. Micaiah is just speaking truth, just like he said he would, as the Lord has told me to say, that's what I'm going to say. And out of nowhere, Zedekiah, this seemingly chief priest of the 400 bums, he comes and smites Micaiah on the face. He says, oh, Micaiah, you can't speak this because the Spirit of the Lord revealed unto us that we were going to win the battle. Throughout history, there has been an utter rejection of truth. Throughout history, we see all of God's men have been hated. Isn't that what Ahab says? Yeah, there's one guy, but I hate him. There's one guy, but I, I don't want to hear from him. And the Bible tells us in the end times that that's exactly what would happen in the world. Second Timothy says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You know what that is? Truth. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and they shall be turned unto fables. In our day and age, people would rather hear you pet their, pet their uh, uh, problems than to confront their, their issues. They, they want you to just, oh, you're fine, coddle them, oh, let's get along, let's coexist. But the Bible says those people that go that way, they're, they're heaping to themselves liars. As in the presence of truth, true change is found. Adrian Rogers says, it is better to tell the truth that hurts and then heals than to tell a lie that comforts and then kills. So the Bible says in Proverbs 27, open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We will be rejected if we will tell the truth. But it is in the presence of truth that progress is made. What we see in our day and age is a a church that is surrendering all sort of doctrine and all sort of standards for the purpose of getting along. The problem with that is the world is becoming churchy and the church is becoming worldly. We see a rejection of truth. I want you to notice finally the vindication of truth though. Verse 28, notice with me if you will. Micaiah said... If thou return it all in peace, you see, his word was that if they went to this battle, Ahab would die. Ahab didn't like that message, so Zedekiah smites Micaiah. And then in verse 28, he says, If thou return it all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. You know, he says, ultimately, whether or not you like what I'm going to say, it's going to happen whether or not you like it. If you return from the battle fine and in ship shape, if, if that's how you come back, then I was wrong. The problem is, uh, Micaiah was not wrong. In the battle, Ahab gets smitten by an arrow. He dies in the bottom of his chariot. And it's because he would not be willing to hear and heed the truth. But I want you to notice something I thought was rather unique as I read through this chapter. Notice in verse number 26. And the king of Israel said, take Micaiah. Everybody find your place in verse 26 if you have your Bible. I want you to help me with a word here in just a moment. And the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and carry him. What's that next word? Back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus saith the king, put this fellow in the prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. This is the only time 
in the Bible, Micaiah is mentioned. Elijah's ministry ends just a few chapters prior. It's like Elijah was a prophet in his day that got the publicity. And maybe the reason is because Micaiah was a prophet in his day that was constantly in prison. You see, Micaiah, the instruction is given by the king, take him back. You ever wonder how they knew exactly where he was? He says, take him back and put him in prison. Do you think there's any chance that Micaiah had already had run-ins with Ahab? But I hate him. You think there's any chance their paths had ever crossed and Micaiah had ever spoken up before? Micaiah's life is not one of publicity. Micaiah's life is relegated to this chapter. We never hear of him again except in the harmonious chapter in, 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 in 1 Chronicles chapter 18. We never hear of him again except in this particular story. Why? Because he lived in prison and very likely died in prison. Let me say, I'm not sure that sounds all that hopeful. I'm not sure I want to be a truth speaker if that's the kind of life I have to live. A few months ago, I went and sat with a family as their daughter was in surgery. We sat through very tense moments. And uh, as you can understand, any parent that has to deal with their child going through surgery is a nervous wreck. And that was certainly the case there in that waiting room that night. I sat with them for a while. I sat with them long enough for the doctor to come out, and he began to tell them. Probably one of the more difficult things I've ever seen a doctor have to do. The surgery was planned to be relatively minor, pretty commonplace procedure. But in the surgery, something went wrong. And the doctor had to sit across from the mom and the dad with the rest of the family seated around and say, I made a mistake. And the mistake I made complicated things. I think I've got it fixed, but it's potentially going to cause issues. Now, I don't think anybody in that waiting room envied the position that the doctor was in. Nor did anybody in that waiting room envy the position that the mom and dad were in. But aren't you glad that that doctor did come out and say what he did wrong? In fact, I sat there in utter disbelief. I was like, in the day of medical liability, he came out and said, I messed up. I couldn't believe it. But at least it told those parents what to expect. Sometimes the truth is hard to deliver. And sometimes the truth is hard to hear. But ultimately, if truth is removed, we never know what to expect. Our nation is running at a breakneck breakneck pace away from God. And unless we start to speak truth, they will not know the ramifications of their actions. They'll look in this life for fulfillment and they'll not find it because there is no fulfillment unless you know your Creator. They'll look in this life for peace and satisfaction and there is no peace and satisfaction apart from knowing God. They'll look all sorts of places. And then they'll come to the end of their life and they'll die. And in a moment of time, they'll wake up. And they'll, they'll, they'll wake up separated for eternity in a place called hell. And it's because the truth tellers did not speak truth to them. Our nation is a nation headed for destruction, no doubt. But a nation that is headed for destruction deserves to have truth speakers speaking truth. 
I'll tell you this. I'll go a step farther. A lot of people speak truth. More of us need to live truth. 